thank you for being here this morning. I'm really stoked. This is one of those lessons that in the preparation has just, well, I was going to say has blessed my socks off, but I have socks on. So that would not be accurate. But it almost did. It was just a real good blessing for me to get to prepare this lesson because today I want to focus a little bit on the way Paul thought. I want to focus on his thinking because his thinking is very much reflected in the two verses we're going to cover today. Yes, I am doing this at a snail's pace and I'm sorry about that. But if I don't spend the time teaching these lessons today from these two verses, then we just miss them. And we can go ahead. There's a great benefit. In fact, I thought about teaching another series, which may strike you as bizarre, but I thought about our next series to be the big picture from different books of the Bible, where I take like a 24-chapter-long Gospel of Luke and put it into one lesson so that we see that overarching picture that's in there. And I think there's value to that. But there's also value in digging down and looking at what Paul meant word by word, clause by clause, phrase by phrase. And that's some of what we're doing here. And if you all get bored with it, that's okay. Just don't tell me. <laughs> but if I could, I would love to illuminate your mind. I love to figure out how people think. I love to figure out, Gwen, what's going on in your show. And, and, and Larry, if I could get into your mind and figure out how you were thinking, I'd be a better builder, but I'd also be, be, be a, a better greeter and a better welcomer. But Larry's out there, has been for years, just welcoming people. These, the, I'd love to know how you think, Scott. I'd love to know what's in your brain. No, Scott's saying, no, you really don't. <laughs> and, and to some degree, I get to as I interact with you guys. But I want to tell you, today, we really get a glimpse into the mind of Paul. And I really like that. So I want to do three things. I want, as we look at his mind, I want to look at, at specifically his confidence how and why he expresses his confidence and what his confidence is. Because that's the next thing we need to do is go to the source of Paul's confidence and see why he is so confident. And then the third thing that we're going to do is we're going to have a little glimpse into what I'm calling Paul's language. You know, different people have different language. And some people have different languages for different circumstances and situations. I've met people in church who have different language than when I've met them outside of church. I've met people at work who have different language in front of a jury than they do when they're not in front of a jury. I've met people with different languages in different phases of their lives. And I want to talk to you about Paul's language. So those are our goals in front of us. Let's start out with this confidence. Now, here's where we're beginning. We're beginning with the last part of verse 18 in chapter 1, which is, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now we need a time out here for just a moment. Because we've just jumped into the middle of a verse. If you were writing a paper in seminary, you would write that that was verse 1, colon, 18b. Because 18a you didn't include. Well, you say my Bible doesn't show A or B. And no, it doesn't. I mean, if you look at your Bible and you flip open to Philippians, you will see here Philippians 1, 18, right here. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now that's 1, 18. See? Then it continues, yes, and I will rejoice. And then verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit. And so 19 is here. Well, this is 18 still, but it's the second part of 18. So you would write that as 1, 18, B. You say, well, why did they do that? Well, they didn't. <laughs> a fella did about 600 plus years ago who was dividing the Bible up into verses. Robert Estian, I believe, was the name of the fella. And, and he's dividing it up and he's taking it and putting it into verses. And he thought that that B part went with the earlier verse. Paul didn't write those numbers. So we need to take a time out because we need to get some context here. We are starting in the middle of a verse. And this is what Pastor David covered last week. And I don't want to cover it again. He did a great job. But I want to make sure we understand it fresh in our brains while we're looking at the rest of what we're looking at. Paul, who is in prison while he writes this, says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest. My imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So I'm in jail. Everybody knows why I'm in jail. But it's emboldened people to talk about Jesus. You ever get embarrassed about talking about Jesus? I hope not. I mean, be bold. Paul's willing to go to jail for it. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Not a great motivation. But others from goodwill. And the latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Now the former, those that preach from envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition... Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're just out there, you know, rubbing Paul's nose in the fact that, hey, we're free to preach Christ. He's in jail. Who's got God's blessing? <clears throat> what then? Only that in every way. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And that's what Pastor David was saying. I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about the gospel being proclaimed. So even the people trying to rub my nose in it. That's okay as long as Jesus is being proclaimed. So in that, I rejoice. That's the background behind where we start today. Where Paul says, yes, 
and I will, let's go back to it here, I will rejoice. And he shifts here, keresomai is future tense. So he's saying, I will rejoice. So not only am I rejoicing now, but I will rejoice because I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Now I want to talk to you about this for just a moment. And I'm going to do this at the risk of, of upsetting you. We need to talk about some grammar. This is fun grammar. This is not like English class. A bunch of my kids at Northland Christian had Killer Miller for English. She made them memorize all of the prepositions. And I could call on them to memorize them, but I don't need to because Dale Hearn is here. Dale Hearn had to memorize all the prepositions when he was in school, right? I say it again. Fifth grade Miss Evans. Edwards, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> Fifth grade, Miss Edwards. Now, Dale's in his 60s, and he remembers Miss Edwards in fifth grade, making him learn those prepositions. Beverly Bowman, happy birthday. You're laughing because you've been an English teacher. She's been that mean lady. And because we've had those teachers who've made us memorize those things when I say the word grammar for some, a shiver goes down their spine. But trust me, there's no test here. This is easy grammar. This is fun grammar. This is informative grammar. This may be transformative grammar. But we're going to have a little grammar talk, okay, Oliver? You there? All right, here it is. Verbs. Verbs are action words, right? Um, I found this. English for kids. Lie, jump, pick up, put down, climb, crawl, fly, fall, run, walk, push, pull, catch, throw. Verbs, action words. And we can do them in different tenses. We can talk about I ran, meaning it's something I did, not the country. We can talk about I will run, meaning something I will do in the future. We can say, I run, meaning present tense. Well, Greek, ancient Greek, had really cool things they did with their verbs. And we call them tenses, but they're not always tenses in the sense like ours are today. They did have a future tense, and we just saw one of those verbs, and they would put it in a future when they're talking about something that's going to happen in the future. This is the one that we had. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul's saying, I know in the future I'm going to rejoice. It's something I will do. I will rejoice. Now, in addition to the future, Greek did something else to their verbs. They could put their verbs in a form that we call the perfect form. And what the perfect form in Greek meant is that something was fully completed in the past, but we want to emphasize the consequences at the time we're talking about it. So it's something that happened in the past with 
present consequences. And what we're emphasizing is not so much what happened in the past, though that's very important, but we're equally emphasizing, if not more so, the implications and consequences for the moment. So that's called the perfect tense, but, but it's an aspect of the verb more so than a tense. Most of the times it'll just be translated in the present tense, like something happening right now, because they want to emphasize the present implications or consequences. But those are tied to a specific fully completed past event. We just don't have a way to show that very well in English. And so you don't really pick it up in the translations. But we've got that here. We've got it. Well, let me first give you, this is a classic example. I forgot I put this slide in here. Here's a classic example that's used in New Testament studies as just a textbook illustration. John 19.30, Jesus is on the cross. When Jesus had received the vinegar, the sour wine, he said... To telestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now John wrote this and put it in the perfect tense. Jesus is probably not speaking Greek, though he, I believe, clearly did speak Greek as well as Hebrew and Aramaic. He was at least trilingual. But Jesus is most likely speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic. But when John writes it down, John wants us to understand what Jesus meant. And so John puts it in the perfect tense. Now remember, what does the perfect do? The perfect is saying an action's been fully completed with consequences at the time of speaking or here even at the time of John's writing. In other words, the work of Christ on the cross, when he says it is finished, he's saying, I have totally, fully completed an action that's got consequences for everyone now. As you're hearing this, as you're reading this. That's true for you and me today. Christ fully completed his work, but there are consequences for you and me that we should see emphasized in the completion of that work. So that's a textbook example of the perfect. Now, with that in your brain, let's go back and see what Paul's saying here. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know, oida, I know, is the perfect form of that verb. And so Paul is saying here, I know right now, these are the consequences. See, they put it into present tense because they want to emphasize. He's saying, based on a completed past, I'm able to talk about the present implications. And we're going to understand what he means by this as we work through this passage. But he's saying, I know right now I'm aware because of a completed past. Something that's happened before. That through your prayers and the help of the Holy uh, uh, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, here's something interesting. For I know, you see, I've highlighted that oida, 
and then will turn out is apobasitai and you see in the English it gets bumped down toward the end of the sentence but in the Greek it's up near the top Paul's got a little bit different emphasis in how he's written it than they're able to put into the English but this is what we have here so we've got the action the perfect I know an action fully completed with consequences at the time of speaking and it will turn out future so he is convinced based upon the past about what the future will be now don't get lost here because this 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 makes sense so so hang with me for just a moment okay here's what he's saying let me give you the compass point Paul is saying I'm in prison and my life is on the line but I have confidence in the future because of what I've seen in the past that's the gist of it and that's the word we should get from it of encouragement Paul's confidence in the future is based upon his knowledge and experience in the past he was scary smart about his emotional intelligence doesn't make the present fixed doesn't fix the present but it gives definition and confidence in the presence that the presence isn't the present isn't always the state there is a future and he knows that based on the past I think the best example of this that I know of that's always ministered to me is found in Psalm 42 and 43 and if you don't have this Psalm in your life these two Psalms you need to you need to to, to make a note and remember these times where you need that encouragement of Paul you go to Psalm 42 and 43 look at it for with me for just a moment this is too important not to have in your reservoir as a deer pants for flowing streams so pants my soul for you O God my soul thirsts for God for the living God and I love soul is your Hebrew the, the concept of your throat is there in this so it's it's nice to say my soul thirsts because it's your person your essence but it's also your throat my soul thirsts for God for the living God where shall I come and appear before God you want to know what I've been eating my tears that's been my food I can't eat I'm so upset I can't eat that's a whole nother look there's upset and then there's real upset that's when I can eat everything okay I mean upset I'm an okay with life real upset I need pizza or ice cream or chocolate and then mega upset I can't even eat my tears have been my food day and night and everybody's taunting me they're saying to me all day long well where's God where's God now they may be taunting in the sense of there is no God nanner 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 or they may be taunting in the sense of how come you're crying where's your God come on buck up have faith be strong where's your God 
these things I remember. So my present tense is despair. But I can go past tense and remember what's happened in the past. As I pour out my soul, I remember how I would go with the throng and I'd lead them in procession to the house of God. I'd be at the front of the parade line. I'd be on uh, uh, singing the worship songs. I'd be, I'd be in there teaching the class with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So I can remember the past even though I'm stuck in this miserable moment of the present. And now I can talk to myself emotionally, intelligently. And I can say, why are you cast down my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Just trust in God because I will, I shall, I'm confident in the future, I will again praise Him, my salvation, and my God. You see what he's doing there? He's doing what Paul says. I have a past that informs my present about what my future will be. And in that, I can live. Now, if the psalm were over there, that'd be great. But I want to tell you what life really is like. Because the psalms are real life. And real life says, I can remember the past to inform my present and assure my future. But that doesn't necessarily change how I feel right now. Because sure enough, the psalmist continues, he says, but even though I've done all of that self-coaching and understanding and walking through my faith, my soul is still cast down within me. I'm still miserable right now. So I remember you, and he walks right back through the same process all over again. And he says at the end, as he walks through it once more, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I will again praise him. Now, if that were it, I'd still feel pretty good, but I feel even better because... Psalm 42 and 43 actually go together. Psalm 43 is the same thing. He starts all over again because he's still upset. And he ends it with his final proclamation of faith for the future. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Three times, three times the writer says, I'm going to let the past encourage and inform my present misery and despair in confidence that you know when you lose a loved one you go through a grieving process and and the Bible doesn't deny that but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 we don't grieve the way the rest of the world grieves you know why because there's a completed work in the past 
that informs our present grief and assures us of future joy. Sherry lost her dad. We are able to look in the past and we still grieve and we're still hurting. But we don't do so without a hope for the future. And that's what Paul's saying. That's Paul's confidence. Now let's go to the next point and see the source of Paul's confidence. Why is he so confident? He gives us the reason. It's that middle part which is down at the end in the Greek. But in the English, to make it make sense for us, the translators bump it to the middle. Yes, and I will rejoice in the future for I know perfect tense based upon the past through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This will turn out for my deliverance. That's the old one-two punch. Through your prayers... That's the one. And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the two. This is going to turn out for the best. It's going to turn out for my deliverance. And what that means by Paul we'll talk about in a moment. But just focus on this for a moment. Through your prayers. And the word for prayer here is that word diasios. And it's, it's a specific request. You're deliberately praying, not just general God bless Paul, but God help him in his imprisonment. Keep him safe. I mean, Paul's imprisoned in Rome. Rome was not a safe town. It was the largest city in the world at the time. A million people. And you did not want to go out at night in Rome. Rome was a little bit unlike our cities today. Our cities today have neighborhoods that are generally considered safe neighborhoods. Then they have neighborhoods that are scary neighborhoods. And, and in the safe neighborhoods, you'll have houses of, of you know, relative affluence. Uh, uh, you know, you, you've got the subdivisions, that kind of stuff. And then you've got places where the impoverished live and poverty breeds um, in some ways uh, uh, it, it breeds ways of survival that can endanger other people well ancient Rome was not set up that way you could have a house of a millionaire right next to a slum they didn't have planned subdivisions and and they didn't have street lights either so you go out at night and nothing good's going to come of it. So, so Rome's not safe even in the best of circumstances and situations. Paul's stuck imprisoned in Rome. Not in the sense of a protected penitentiary. But in the sense of being locked up in a slum. And, 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 and if Paul's got a chance to go out. It's not safe, period. These people are praying for Paul specifically. That he'll have food, that he'll have health, that he'll have nourishment. To keep the rats away from him in the slum where he is. To keep the bugs away. For his health. For his emotional fortitude. For his faith. 
for his ability to pray for his you know they're praying for Paul in specific ways and Paul says I know that's going to make a difference because I've got a past that informs my present God honors prayer and if you're saying well I've prayed some things I really wanted really badly that were pretty important that I think should be inconsistent should be totally consistent with God's will and he didn't come through that's okay that's okay because God always has an ultimate plan that our three-pound brain doesn't grasp and we can lay our heart out to him but we've got to accept his will but having said that I'm here to tell you I've got those experiences but I've also got the experiences where God has answered my prayer in ways that are unmistakably that show his fingerprint as definitely as any CSI investigator could find. We worship a God, and Paul says, through your specific requests to him, and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's actually a little bit ambiguous uh, in some ways in the Greek you always have some level of ambiguity with the genitive forms not always but often um, epikoregios uh, is is uh, this this uh, idea of of the the help it it um, epikoregia is uh, could be used to give assistance um, it could be used for like putting food in an army, giving the army food. It's, it's basically the idea of giving help or aid. And so the, the ambiguity in the Greek is, and the help of the Spirit of Christ, does it mean the help that the Spirit of Christ is giving along with prayer? Or does it mean the help of having the Spirit of Christ? Paul may mean both. Because it's written kind of uh, ambiguously. But, but either way, what we're seeing here is the old one-two punch between your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ that Christ gives or that Christ is. I know it's going to turn out for my deliverance. So now I have a challenge for you. I've been watching these YouTube videos, by the way. You ever watch YouTube? Have you gotten into the chess videos? Okay, color me nerd. I have. Love these chess videos, okay? I mean, it's just, this is the stuff I used to do. And so I just get real into it. I used to play tournament chess. And, and uh, it, it uh, helped me develop as a thinker and, and would make some money on occasion uh, because the prizes were money. And so... Um, there's a kind of chess called speed chess. It's blitz, uh, uh, it's also called. It's where, in general, you've got five minutes to play your entire game. Each side does. And, and if you're, you run out of time, so you, there's a chess clock with two dials on it or two digital imprints. And when it's your time, your five minutes is ticking down until you move. And you move and then you hit your clock. Your clock stops, your opponent's begins. And your opponent's time starts ticking down. And so you're just playing and you're just hitting your clock, okay? And you got five minutes to get your whole game over with or you lose. If your clock ends first, you're gone. 
So there are these people who sit out on these little park benches and these little outdoor cafe eateries and they play chess all the time. Now in a normal tournament, you have to pay attention and everybody's got to be silent and you sit there and the normal game can take three, four, five hours. Blitz, you not only get to move real fast and the whole game happens real fast, but you get to smack talk the whole time. You get to say things to your opponent, to psych out your opponent. And you just sit there and say, that's ah, a loser move. You say also, you're a fish, you smell, you stink. You can say anything you want. And you can, you, you, it's just, and so I watch these videos of these guys. There's just a video being set up on a cafe corner where these guys just sit around all day, or gals, they're both genders, and they smack talk and they play chess. And they'll challenge each other. I challenge you, take the gambit, take the pawn, I challenge you. I have, I'm sure, that's the, the reason behind this slide. I challenge you. I have a challenge for you. Here's my challenge. Re-up your commitment to pray specifically. Not just in general, but specific. Now, I'm not talking about it needs to be some long, drawn-out prayer. God knows your heart. One of the remarkable things about Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, compared to the prayers of, the, um, of many in that day, which were long and wordy, Jesus says, in fact, sometimes they're praying more for the people to hear them than God. Jesus' prayer was very succinct, but it was still very specific. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who've sinned against us, who owe us. Don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. You know, these are real specific and they inform us in specific ways. And I want you to re-up your commitment to pray specifically for other people. Don't miss the intercessory aspect of this. Paul doesn't say I'm confident in the future because I'm praying about the past and the present. Paul says I'm confident because you're praying on my behalf. Paul grew up in that Jewish tradition of understanding God didn't smite Israel time after time after time because Moses interceded for them and said, please don't kill them all. Interceding in prayer is a powerful thing. God has set this world up where when we do that, we're able to get God's employment into whatever the task is that we're praying about. Say, well, well, he's God, why doesn't he just do it on his own? Oh, there are some things he does that way. But he put us here and instructed us to do that. It's just we need his help. This is a learning and a growing experience for you and me. Say, well, I haven't experienced God answering prayer directly. Then you need to pray more. So that's my challenge to you. Because the source of Paul's confidence is one two punch prayer and Jesus all right let's move on third point I want to talk about Paul's language now this is really fun 
I love this. Let me tell you how I got here, where this would be a point for today. I was translating this passage, getting ready for class. And what I typically do when I get ready to teach is I sit down with the Greek and I just work through it. And after I work through it, I'll go and look for scholars. In fact, um, give you a moment of insight. I keep a, a book for everything I do, uh, not different books. I, this, is, this book's got legal stuff in it, personal stuff in it. All kinds of stuff. I, I, I just, uh, I'm on a, a relatively new one right now. And so um, you, can, you can look at my book and you can see what's going on in my life. I've done this for 30 years. Um, this was, you know, for example, I had a Zoom call with Wycliffe Hall. Um, let's see. Focus, focus. Focus, focus, focus. There. Um, you know, and we were talking about theological education and all of this kind of stuff. Um, uh, I've got legal stuff I can't show you because it would waive an attorney-client privilege, and you never know who's watching on the Internet. But if you look at this page, for example, this is some, whoops, go back here. This is some of the prep work I was doing for class. And so I would write out Philippians 1.19, actually 18b and 19, um, uh, so, so this is the uh, moreover uh, also I, I will rejoice because I know that and I'll just work through it and I'll put little notes down uh, that, that remind me of something that I want to say like point one oida that's perfect that's an action completed with consequences at the time of speaking the classic example we learned was tetelestai uh, it's the future or the perfect stem of ido uh, which means I see, you know, and I'll just make these little notes as I work through it. And, and so I was doing that, and as I was working through it, I hit this passage right here. <clears throat> uh, not through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, but, but um, this will turn out for my deliverance. And that is up here, Tauto Moi, uh, this, to me, it's the dative, um, apobesitai uh, uh, is, is to depart or to turn or to, to go, um, uh, to go away. Uh, uh, and, and so this, tauto, this, to me, will go away into salvation. I'm thinking... Yes, and I will rejoice because, and I'm, that's so clumsy. That's, that's really, and you look at the verb tense here and, and the form of the verb in the middle. And I'm thinking, man, I was, I was really struggling to translate it. And, and I knew how the translators did it because I've got it memorized. But I could, I was, I was backward engineering trying to figure it out. I was really struggling. I thought, that's so awkward. Paul's Greek is normally a lot easier for me to follow. But for some reason, he started writing really awkwardly to me. It just seemed bizarre. It's like all of a sudden, I'm talking to you like this, and then I lapse into Shakespearean English. And I start talking of, uh, where far art thou, Romeo? Which doesn't mean, where are you, Romeo? It actually means, why are you, Romeo? Romeo? 
wherefore art thou, Romeo? And, 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 I, it, and I'm thinking, what is going on here? And so I was really struggling with this, will turn out for my deliverance stuff. And then, as I tend to do, after trying to work through the Greek myself and see what I wanted to teach and see what I could learn, I looked at some resources of people who are really good Greek scholars and good New Testament scholars, and I went to them as a resource. And I either learned something that I had totally forgotten, which is really possible at my age, or I learned something for the first time, take your pick. But that passage that is such awkward Greek to me is a quotation that Paul has. Paul is quoting, Tim, from your favorite book. Paul is quoting from Job. Paul is actually quoting from Job. Job has got this passage and it's found in Job 13, 16. Now, Job's got a couple of friends who are, and I should put friends in quotation mark, who are giving him the what for. And Job finally answers his friends in the first of these rounds of speeches that they have. And, and I love this because Job starts out with something along the lines of, oh man, when you die, all wisdom will go out with you. I mean, clearly you guys have it all. I pray for you not to die because the world will be bereft without your wisdom. You know, and he starts out that way. But Job ultimately, in the Greek translation, if I had time, I would put it up here because you'd really enjoy seeing it. In the Greek translation of Job, hold on, Job, 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 Job 13, 16. In the Greek translation, it's word for word, syllable by syllable, vowel by vowel, letter by letter, accent by accent. It's the same. This will be my salvation. That's what it says. And tauto moi apo soterion. This will be my salvation. Paul's quoting from Job. That's why it seems like stilted Greek to me because it's not Paul's typical Greek. It's Greek from several hundred years earlier where the Jewish rabbis were translating Job into Greek from the Hebrew. And so, yes, this will turn out for my, now they translated here deliverance, but soterion is salvation as well. Same word as salvation, deliverance. So this will turn out for my deliverance. Now Job was saying it in the sense of not so much a faith in God as much as almost a faith in himself. Because Job says, because the ungodly aren't going to be saved. Remember, don't ever quote Job for your theology. This is a guy in the midst of a lot of trouble. You don't get your theology from it. You get an understanding of where his heart was. <laughs> because only the ungodly get heard by God and will be delivered. But Job's thinking, hey, don't blame me. I, this is not because of my sin. Ungodly don't get delivered by God. Well, actually they do. And this is Paul fixing the theology. 
Because Paul's saying that it is the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is prayers to God that will turn out for my deliverance. It's not my righteousness. And he takes Job and he turns it upside down and fixes it. But he speaks Job with the idea that God is the deliverer. See, he can have confidence of the future in the miserable present because of the past. Do you know the song, My Deliverer by Rich Mullins? My songstress, do you know that one? Everybody needs to know that song. So I'm going to play it for you if we've got time. Let's see if this works. And I finished this PowerPoint this morning and I didn't have a chance to run through it. So if my PowerPoint doesn't work up with the song, uh, it's Becky's fault. Joseph took his wife and her child and they went to Africa to escape the of a deadly king There along the banks of the Nile Jesus listened to the song That the captive children used to sing They were singing
It's, amen. It's a powerful, powerful song. Powerful. I came to that song. I was in trial in 2005. It was just a really tough time. I was away from my family. I didn't like being away from my family. And I was whining about it uh, to my son on the telephone. My son said, Dad, do you know Rich Mullins' song, My Deliverer? And I said, ah, it's not ringing a bell. He says, well, you need to, to just make that your trial song. Just download it. Just know that God is coming. And what a powerful word God spoke to me through my son and to turn me on to this song, which has just really blessed my socks off ever since. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's quoting Job 13, 16, but deliverance, he knows this is going to turn out for his deliverance and his salvation. And what I'm really impressed with here is Paul's language in the sense that I know Paul spoke Hebrew and I know Paul spoke Aramaic and I know Paul spoke Greek and I can pretty much bet you Paul spoke Latin. But more than all of that, I want to tell you, he spoke Scripture. He had spent so much time in the Word that it just informed his language. It just was a part of how he thought. And I talked to you about different people having different languages in different places. Paul consistently had Scripture in his language. You can't hear him talk without echoes of Scripture in his speaking. You can look at this passage even beyond that. If we had time, I would show you where he talks about, um, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation. Apokaradokian is eager expectation. Kai uh, elpida. Elpis is, is uh, um, confident expectation as well. It's a uh, uh, hope is the way it's normally translated. But when you put these together, it's not just the idea of hope, but it's the idea of eagerly anticipating it. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death he's echoing their language out of Psalms 34 and 35 this idea of being ashamed or God being honored being ashamed or God being honored I don't have time to go to those because we're out of time here in about two minutes but here's the way Gordon Fee translated this passage. And I don't, <clears throat> I'd, I'd put some nuance on it, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll leave it the way he's got. This whole affair will turn out to my ultimate salvation and present vindication when, through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Christ, my earnest expectation and hope are realized at my trial. And not only am I brought, not brought to shame, but in a very open or bold way, Christ is magnified in every way, whether I'm given a life or whether I'm given death. Paul's not speaking so much of a confidence that he's going to get off. He's speaking of a confidence that whether he does or whether he doesn't, whether it's life or whether it's death for Paul, Christ is going to be magnified. That's all he cared about. He'll say later, to, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul wasn't desperately trying to save his life. He was desperately trying to magnify Christ. But to see the way Scripture informed his language is a real challenge for me. So what was Paul thinking? The mind of Paul? I love it. And I want to follow it. Here are your points for home. 
Number one, let your past influence your present. If you're in a place right now where the present's not too great, think about the good old days, but don't think about them only lamenting. Think about how God has brought you to where you are today because he's not going to let you go. And that can give you confidence in the future. I will rejoice because I know. Number two, be confident in prayer in Christ. Your confidence should not be based in you. It should be based in him. I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, whether I'm found guilty or not. And then finally, become fluent in Scripture. It's a reason to come to church. It's a reason to come to class. It's a reason I love Pastor Jarrett's preaching. Before that, I loved Pastor David's preaching. Before that, I loved Pastor DeMond's preaching because they all preach out of the Word. I want to become fluent where my thoughts and my vocabulary are influenced by Scripture, not culture. Uh, Let me bless you and let's go to church. Father, I ask your blessings on everyone who hears this message. I, in prayer, Father, ask you to bless them with conviction, with an understanding with a decision that they will spend time in prayer, with a decision that they will spend time in the Word, and that your Spirit will infuse them with the the armor they need to walk today in victory. I pray through the name and blood of Jesus Christ, my Deliverer. Amen. See you guys next Sunday. God bless you.